the thing with this is it's gaining territory on your body slowly, but surely. At the beginning, when, when I started with the fever, honestly, that, that alarmed me very bad because I'm not a person who developed fever for anything. That's Lola Gomez. She's a photojournalist in Austin, Texas. She's a runner. She's normally pretty healthy. And then uh, three, four days later, when I started with coughing, I was like, ooh, this is, looks like COVID-19. At day nine or 10 is when the, all the symptoms get really, really bad. And for me, it was on day 12, honestly, 11, 12. Right. So that's this really scary thing about COVID-19 that some medical workers call the COVID crash. It's when the disease goes from bad to worse, like all of a sudden. And that happened to Lola. It was, it was really fast. It's a scary, really scary feeling because I didn't, I never had that feeling before when, when your body start to getting like sleeping or something like that. Like it was numb. I, I couldn't even open my eyes. Lola was in trouble and she knew it. She knew she needed to get to the hospital. So even feeling sick like that, she got into her car and she drove herself. And my, my sister was with me all the time on the phone, and she was trying to calm me down. She was crying, but she was like, breathe. And then I made it. I made it to the ER. She'd entered the surreal world of gowned and gloved and masked healthcare workers. She couldn't breathe. She really believed she might die in that bed alone with no family to hold her hand. Being by yourself without not even a friend, it's the, the worst feeling ever. But as she was fighting for each breath, she realized she wasn't actually alone. Not completely, anyway. Her nurses were there, and they cared about her. Not just as a patient. They cared about her as a person. She's awestruck by that to make other people that you don't know to feel safe the last minutes they are alive. When they are losing their lives, it's like, it's impressive. And, and you need to be, you need to be a very strong person to do that. So obviously, Lola didn't die. She beat COVID, thank goodness. She's been released from the hospital and she's now at home. But she will never forget her nurses. I admire them doing this work for people that they don't even know at all. And definitely I, I respect their very big time now. We're in the thick of a pandemic right now in which thousands of people have already died. And for many of them, there was only one person by their side, a nurse. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and today, nurses on the front lines of COVID-19. So let's go back in time for a minute. The year is 1854. You're a young soldier lying on a filthy cot. You're wounded, you're malnourished, and you are far from home 
you have a fever, you have chills, you're vomiting and worse from cholera, you know there is a good chance you're going to die here in this squalid spot in this foreign land. You want your mother. You want to go home. Then, at the end of your corridor is a dim light. It's the glow from a tiny Turkish lamp that moves, then stops at each soldier's bed. The lady with the lamp is here. Florence Nightingale is here. Your nurse is here. And you know comfort is coming. That's the art of nursing. We comfort people. That's Cindy Sakura. She's a professor of nursing at UT Health San Antonio School of Nursing with a doctorate in nursing practice. But she still sees herself more as a nurse like Nightingale. I'm going to get food. I'm going to get water. I'm going to get a bath. I'm going to have some level of comfort that I don't have right now. During the Crimean War, British nurse Florence Nightingale brought comfort to soldiers who were sick and in pain. She's known as the mother of modern nursing. You know, we look at nursing schools and she created all of that and she created the essence of nursing and, you know, that it's an art and a science. It's the art of nursing that Nightingale is known for, but it's her science that truly changed the world. Florence Nightingale identified the importance of infection control. She identified how to do it. Wash your hands. Wait, that sounds familiar. And we're still 130 years, 40, 50 years later, talking about washing your hands. And Nightingale demonstrated that when good infection control practices, which were hand washing and sanitizing areas, when that was implemented, we reduced infections. When Nightingale and her team of 38 nurses showed up at that military field hospital in Turkey, there was feces everywhere. There were rats and fleas everywhere. Not all of the patients had beds. Not all of those with beds had blankets. And none of the blankets were clean. Nightingale and her nurses cleaned the hospital and the patients. And Nightingale put her theories of infection control to work. If you look at her epidemiological mapping, it's remarkable for the time. Before the nurses got there, it's estimated that around 40% of the soldiers in that hospital died. After the nurses started working, the mortality rate plunged. The field of nursing was born and healthcare changed forever. I think that's why nursing is, you know, one of the most trusted professions. See, that's what nurses do. It's the art of compassionate care and the science of healthcare. To me, one of the most important pieces of what we do, especially in a time like this, you know, how are we going to keep people healthy? Nurses keep people healthy, sometimes at great risk to themselves. Too often, this goes unnoticed. During this pandemic, we're noticing. We're noticing nurses who are like Nightingale, putting their lives on the line for us. Nurses are still holding the lamp. We talked to some of them and we want to tell you their stories. We'll take you from a southern border town to the COVID epicenter and we'll make some stops in between. Let's go. We're starting in San Antonio. 
a city of more than 1.5 million people. It's known for its cultural diversity and its river walk, which winds through downtown, one story below what would typically be the darting cars and buses, you know, the standard rattle and hum of urban activity. The Riverwalk is lined with shops and restaurants, now empty, and the air would usually be thick with English and Spanish and smatterings of words from other languages that let you know someone took a plane to get here. And of course, the universal language of laughter. But now, the Riverwalk is silent. The city is silent. If you want to find activity in San Antonio now, you go to one of the hospitals. <laughs> yes, if we can jump up and down and just, you know, kind of high five each other in the air. It takes a true team. That's where we find Erin Perez. She's a nurse at University Hospital. One of her patients, a patient with COVID-19, had been on a ventilator. Statistics out of New York have found that up to 80% of COVID patients who end up on a ventilator die. But the patient Aaron's team had been treating, well, they just removed him from the vent and he was breathing on his own. So I know this morning we will have more energy than we've had in a while because we've needed somebody to, you know, their bodies come back online and, and have some good energy. Erin is a palliative care nurse. She sees the sickest of the sick. These are patients that I'm seeing that are critically ill, likely may die, and just need really extensive artificial life support to prolong their life. Her job, even more than most nurses, is to make whatever comes next as comfortable as possible. Comfort comes in many ways. Sometimes it's unspoken comfort just to be there and be able to hear what your patients, families, and your colleagues need. So far, she's cared for three patients with COVID-19. One was a very young woman, and by all accounts, she should not have passed away. Um, but COVID is vicious. Um, and what I have experienced is when COVID ravages the body and their body is just, it's too tired to go on, they go very quickly. It's not something that they linger. This woman was a mom like Erin. She was otherwise healthy. She didn't have any of the chronic diseases that might make a person vulnerable to the serious complications of COVID, but she died anyway. And part of Aaron's job is also to comfort the family. In the time of COVID, that is also complicated. See, they can only talk to families on the phone. Normally when we're having such a hard conversation. We want to be present to be able to see what are their eyes telling us? What are their non-verbal cues telling us? So we know how to best conversate with them and comfort them. But through a phone, it is very, very hard. And even when your patient passes away, we can't, as nurses, as healthcare team, we cannot hug each other. We cannot console each other the way that we are normally doing. All we can do, and I can tell you being there, um, is we take a moment of silence. There is a little prayer that is said. I actually asked uh, one of our palliative care chaplains to come 
um, because in that moment, it was our first um, COVID passing. And you could see the devastation in everybody's eyes. You could see the well of tears in everybody's eyes that, you know, we're all thinking, could we have done more? (sighs) Could we have done more? That's a heavy burden to bear. It's like it's like rocks in a big bag strapped to your back that you have to carry around everywhere. How does Erin lighten that load? Making sure that your teams know that with one death does not mean that we have failed, that we learn and we move on to help somebody else. Making sure that they know they're valued and that they matter and that they have purpose still. And we will get through this one day at a time. When you ask a nurse, are you doing what you need to do for you? Are you eating, hydrating, taking care of you? Most nurses are going to say yes. But if you ask them, really, (laughs) when is the last time you had something to hydrate? When is the last time you had something to eat? Then you actually start to uncover maybe they may or may not be truly taking time for them because nurses care for so many others. So I definitely think in the future, we will need to look at on a mass scale, how do we help people with potential PTSD that they may be encountering, anxiety, depression. And if we don't have the resources, whether it's manpower or whether it's medications or equipment, the ethical and moral distress by seeing somebody suffer and having that helplessness is a horrible feeling and to bear witness. That patient of Aaron's, the young mom who died, Aaron says she saw herself in that woman and her death has Aaron reflecting on the ways she protects her husband, a police officer, and her kids from her because she's at risk of becoming infected every day. Well, I can tell you I'm on my fourth week of being in a spare bedroom with my own bath. I have not had any hugs or kisses. When I am on the way home, I will call my family and say, um, please get the clean towels out, get my pajamas ready, get what I need to ready, leave them right by the door um, so I can immediately change and go in the shower and then Lysol and clean everything after I'm done. Nurses across the country are isolating themselves from their families in spare rooms and hotels and even RVs in their driveways. It's what they do, right? They keep other people healthy, even if it means they spend the length of this pandemic alone. No matter how much comfort they bring to others, there's really not much comfort for them. Sometimes it's difficult to find hope as the reality of a pandemic presses down on you. At least it is for me. Uh, But I often find that looking back helps me look forward with optimism. And guess what? That's true now, believe it or not. After all, this is not the first time a deadly virus has driven people into their homes. I have watched the victims of polio in this hard-hit area. I have watched them weekly for the past year and a half. Way back machine time again. It's April 1955, and CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, sends an important announcement over the airwaves. Here now is Dr. Jonas Salk making his historic pronouncement 
on the effectiveness of the Salk vaccine at the University of Michigan last Tuesday afternoon. Dr. Salk, I've heard about him my whole life. He was actually my dad's hero and his vaccine. It was a very big deal. I would like to conclude only with a paraphrase of Sir Winston Churchill by saying that on the basis of these data, the future does not seem to be completely veiled in obscurity. The vaccine helped make polio a rare disease, but before its development and widespread use, polio was terrifying. For people like my dad, who was nine when a polio epidemic sickened 60,000 Americans, it was really terrifying. When we would hear of a child and all of a sudden everything clamped down. So that's Dee Trevino. She's my dad's age. The fact that we couldn't use the swimming pools, all of those things which have parallels to the present situation. Dee remembers being impatient to see her friends, to get life back to normal. You know the drill. I think the biggest thing is we were all waiting, just like we're waiting now. And the wait was worth it. Jonas Salk's polio vaccine set everyone free. And the lessons learned then are coming in handy for Dee now. See, she's a nurse in a clinic on the edge of the Rio Grande Valley. I'll codes for that. Okay. So, yes, they're not wrong. They just... Dee often helps other colleagues no navigate the complicated bureaucracy of healthcare. Here, she's helping a coworker understand and update yesterday. codes for patients. So now I gotta go back to my learning my... Um, Your what? My code. Well, anytime you see A at the end, it's the... You only can use the A... Right now, the surge hasn't hit the Rio Grande Valley. Healthcare providers like Dee are bracing for the worst of it. Yeah, they made it countywide yesterday that only two people in the car. If you're coming to a doctor's office, no more than four people. And they're also trying to navigate the constantly changing rules from county to county. No, it's Cameron County. Yeah, it's Cameron. In this meeting, they're trying to figure out what the rules for Cameron and Hidalgo counties are. Yes, we do. We did. Trevino's clinic is a general practice. By day, you just go for a checkup there. But at night, it becomes an urgent care. It doesn't have a huge staff, different departments and specialties, or dozens of beds. This small clinic has identified 10% of the coronavirus cases in Hidalgo County. And Trevino says her clinic is not built to handle a surge of contagious patients. We just go about our daily lives and try to do the best we can with whatever shows up every day. We have personal protective equipment. I would not want to say we have the best. We have some gowns. We have some masks. We've had to work around shortages with. You get put on a back order. Even the order that I thought was guaranteed that we had um, N95s coming in at a really good price, $3 a mask, versus the people that were selling them for $7.95 and 15 that order hasn't shown up yet, and it's been about three weeks. No masks is, well, it's a devastating problem in the face of this virus, especially for people like Dee 
Remember, D lived through that polio epidemic in the 50s? Yes, Nurse D is 77 years old. She's part of a high-risk population, perhaps the highest-risk population. Johns Hopkins University says in people over 70 who get COVID, the mortality rate is up to 11%. So if D gets this, it's more likely that she will die than those around her. Despite this, she's still going to work. She actually served one of the first COVID-19 positive patients in the clinic, a local surgeon. I didn't know he was going to show up at the front desk. He is the only person that we know has been in the build, in the inside office, who was sick. I actually, when they called me and told me he was there, I went up and I led him to the lab. So I definitely got exposed. I have had the test and I'm negative. And at this point, I'm being a lot more careful so that I don't get re-exposed. Nurse D will not be denied. But why? Why not take a little time off during this thing? Because I want to, I guess is the simplest answer. And if you make a conscious choice about health care, you know there are dangers involved. Now, this is not the usual danger, I'll admit that. But I think, I hope, all of us operate every day on faith as well. And I think that's really the only thing we can do is do what we think is our purpose in life. And in this case, our purpose is to take care of people and do that the best way we can and have faith that we'll come out of it stronger. It feels good to consider life on the other side of this thing. But as we know, we're not there yet. So let's shift our focus now to the center of the crisis, the belly of the beast, if you will. It's a city known for its towering skyscrapers that create concrete canyons, its diversity, and yes, its strength. New York, every night at 7 p.m. when it's time for a shift change at the hospitals, New Yorkers stick their heads and their arms out their windows and they notice the nurses and they let them know just how much they appreciate them. So I talked to a nurse in New York City, and for the record, I think every nurse is a hero. They're rock stars. Those are just facts. That's all I'm saying. But this nurse in New York City, she doesn't like being called a hero. I don't. Um, that's kind of a hard word for me to swallow. Um, I try my best as a nurse, and I love being a nurse. Um, but this is just what we do. And she prefers not to be named. She's humble. She says she doesn't want the attention. So... We're not going to name her. I'm a nurse at NYU Langone and have been for almost four years now. For most of those four years, she was a pediatric nurse. She dealt with kids until... Probably like a couple of days after it really started to peak in New York. Um, this was about the... In March, like towards the end of March, we converted half of my pediatric unit to adult COVID. 
So we were running a unit with nurses who either had not worked in adults for several years or had never worked with adult population. The adults she and her colleagues see are very, very sick. And on top of this, since this is a pediatric ward and it has pediatric equipment. So most of her stuff was not the appropriate size for her adult patients. So they got the right kind of equipment, but the healthcare workers there, they're still, they're still overwhelmed. The staff is used to treating kids in a controlled environment, not contagious adults in a chaotic, constantly changing environment. But she and her colleagues, they don't have time to process this fear or to think about anything, but their patience during their shift. I had this conversation with one of my coworkers, actually, um, the first day our unit opened, and she pulled me into the bedroom and she was like, what am I going to do? I'm having a panic attack. I can't do this. I just grabbed her and I was like, we're going to do this because right now we just don't even have a choice. We're going to get through the shift and we're going to keep everyone alive and then we'll go home and cry. <laughs> but she actually doesn't just get through the shift. She often shows up early or she stays late. Remember, families, they can't visit these wards. They can't come to the bedside of their critically ill loved ones. This nurse is in touch with many of these families. And in addition to providing health care, she helps them stay in touch. I've been going to that patient's bedside and I'll either put the family on speakerphone or FaceTime and just stay in the room and hold the patient's hand while they, they talk to them. Um, so when you walk in the room, it's a lot of lines, wires, equipment, um, things beeping and alarms going off in the room. And the patient does look peaceful. Um, I just kind of try to stand by the bedside and either hold their hand or put my hand on their arm, um, call the family and just put the phone to their ear, the patient's ear. Um, sometimes it feels like I'm intruding on a really intimate moment for them. So that part has been, I feel like I almost want to like step away <laughs> because it, you know, I'm not, I'm just there to facilitate it. I'm not, you know, a part of their connection. These tiny moments, they take place in a hectic environment with doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists trying to communicate as critical patients. They're struggling to breathe or even just move and their alarms go off one after the other, just ringing and beeping and demanding attention. It constantly just sounds like a buzzing noise. There's really no moments of quiet or peace. It's it's just a constant noise, which is something that we are used to working in the hospital, but it's a different environment. It just feels tense. And you might have noticed that siren in the background behind her in New York. That's constant, too. Yeah, I live on the Upper East Side, so we're right by a lot of the hospitals up here. Uh, so we do constantly hear the sirens. Uh, what they say about alarm fatigue is very real. Um, at some point, it just becomes like a background noise. Every healthcare provider in the city has experienced this, this overwhelming fatigue. They've been sharing their stories on social media. I think it's safe to say we've all been exposed, whether it be from our coworkers or from the patients. I um, got to work this morning 
And within the first 40 minutes of being there, we had our first code of the day. And that person did not survive. Things are just totally crazy right now. Yesterday, we had two codes. And neither one of those people survived. You want to save people. And some people, you can't do that. So it, it wears on your heart. I cried the whole way home with the Uber tonight. And the driver, the driver was like, ma'am, are you okay? I was like, I don't think people understand how stressful this job is. So I'm talking to this nurse on Zoom so I can see her and the stress of this pandemic. It's it's clearly written on her face. All the noise, all of this sickness and death, it's, it's clearly adding rocks, boulders even, to that metaphorical bag of worry strapped to her back that she's got to carry around all the time. She knows she needs to talk to someone, but right now there just isn't time. Um, I think once this has died down a little, I, I think I'm still on like the fight mode, <laughs> my adrenaline kicking in. Um, I definitely will want to get, you know, some professional help and talk about all this and um, rely on my coworkers as well who have experienced um, the same struggles as I have. So back before I got into radio, uh, I waitressed my way through college and we had this term in the weeds. When you're in the weeds, you can't keep up. There's just too much going on. You're overwhelmed and, well, there's no better way to say it. You just can't, can't keep up. Yeah, that's exactly what it felt like. Heck yes, I think she's a hero. She risks her health to help patients connect with their families. She risks her health to help them survive this disease. She and thousands of other nurses risk so much every day but she rejects that hero label outright. So I asked her about Florence Nightingale, you know, the lady who held the lamp. Would it be okay if I thought of her as someone who who brings light to her patients? I do like that because we're we're here to help and you know, I, I do think of I do think of all my coworkers as heroes. It's hard for me to say it about myself. But everyone's just doing their best right now. But I have to say, in general, we always are. Even before this, people are just doing absolutely amazing things. So let's talk a bit about resources. As healthcare workers tackle the coronavirus outbreak in the hardest hit areas like New York City, you may have seen some of them on TV talking about the problems they've been running into. This is life or death. Every hospital in the state of New York and across the United States should have the supplies they need. People come in, they get intubated, they die, the cycle repeats. I usually do three days a week. I'm up to five 13-hour shifts this week, and I'm tired. So I'm about to change my scrubs. We're seeing a lot of nurses getting sick, incredibly sick. I'm not feet away from them. I am two inches from their face. So I have COVID in my hair, I have COVID on my face. We're dealing with an overwhelming need for PPE. Behind the scenes, when nurses and doctors turn to the press, they're setting themselves up for conflict with the hospitals they work for. I don't really care if I get in trouble for speaking to the media. I want people to know that this is bad, 
people are dying. We don't have the tools that we need in the emergency department and in the hospital to take care of them. One of the groups that advocates on behalf of nurses here in Texas is the Texas Nurses Association. And I asked their director of practice, Serena Bumpus, if she had heard of clashes between medical staff and hospital higher ups. So I have I have heard that some nurses have been terminated from their positions because of bringing their own supply of PPE in. PPE, you may have heard that's personal protective equipment like face shields and masks and gowns and gloves. Or raising concerns about um, just the lack of PPE or the processes. There has definitely been some discontent around that. And actually, Texas nurses have protections in the Nurse Practice Act and state whistleblower laws that um, basically state it's illegal to retaliate against workers because they are reporting unsafe or unhealthful working conditions. And of course, this is especially true during the COVID-19 pandemic. These whistleblower laws, they don't grant total immunity to someone who wants to speak up, though. Serena says nurses need to go through the proper chain of command and go through all of the official channels. And they have those advocacy protections when they take that route. The official channels, of course, don't always produce results. Whistleblower complaints can get lodged away and squashed inside medical bureaucracy. That's why nurses go public with their concerns. They, they talk to the press because they don't trust the official channels. I I do not encourage them to use social media or regular media. That really should be the last resort, if an option at all, because that, that doesn't necessarily mean they'll have the protections that they need. Of course, nothing in this life is without its ironies, and that includes this pandemic. As nurses across the country are on the front lines answering the call to volunteer in surge areas or overwhelmed in their own hospitals fighting a new virus they're improvising to treat, others, they're on the sidelines. They're furloughed. Here's Serena Bumpus again. So interestingly enough, right now, our hospitals are about at a 30 to 60 percent capacity rate. Their volumes have tanked substantially because we've canceled all of our elective and non-urgent procedures. What nurses are actually experiencing right now are canceled shifts, furloughs, or layoffs. Right now, we're actually sitting... (laughs) in a very unique position where nurses um, are, are looking for work. So one solution is to reassign the nurses who don't have work to do right now and train them to be ready for a surge. So, for example, your certified registered nurse anesthetists, all of those nurses are required to have um, critical care experience before they can go to school. And so, you know, they also are highly skilled at managing ventilators but not everyone's being retrained. Some are just out of work. And uh, as you can imagine, a moratorium on outpatient surgery uh, doesn't bode well for an outpatient surgery center. So uh, my wife and I, because we own the uh, anesthesia company that covers here, we actually furloughed ourselves because there's essentially nothing for us to do. That's James Stockman. He's a certified registered nurse anesthetist in East Texas. We're surviving on savings right now. Uh, we are also applied for some of the governmental programs that they have uh, 
that they've put out there, the payroll protection. Nobody feels good sitting home during a crisis, but it feels especially frustrating for nurses like James and his wife. My wife and I were talking about that the other day. Uh, Actually, uh, just last night, uh, we really, really, really want to get back to work and caring for our patients. James says if East Texas sees a surge, he's ready for the call to go back to work at a moment's notice. But but if he could talk to other nurses of all kinds who are furloughed right now, like he and his wife are, he'd say, Keep doing what you're doing in any capacity you can, whether it's comforting uh, people uh, in your own household and uh, teaching your kids like we're doing, or if you are called up, go in and take care of your patients as best as you always have. See, James and his wife, they're still holding lamps, even though they're at home. So this is where I try to tie everything together for you with some final thoughts. But but one of my conversations this week moved me so much, I've decided to let her give the final thoughts. Sarita Pumpus, you've heard from her already in the show. She's with the Texas Nurses Association now, but for a long time, she was a nurse treating patients like the nurses we've talked to this week. And she has thoughts about nurses, especially in the time of COVID. We are some of the strongest human beings to to walk this earth. We endure and we see so many things from the birth of a baby to um, to a mom who's come in from a car accident to to allowing someone to take their last breaths in every every one of those moments is a privilege. And it is a great privilege to be part of any one of those moments in a person's life. And I would say that as scary as this situation is, it's still a privilege to serve. And it's a privilege to serve alongside every single one of these members because there is not anyone who's running away. And for that, I am very grateful and extremely proud. Wait, I do have a final thought after that. So Sarita Bumpus mentioned there that this is scary for nurses. And I've heard a lot of wartime analogies used to describe the position nurses find themselves in as they're on the front lines of this pandemic. See right there, front lines. It's the name of this podcast. But we can't allow this cloud of war around COVID blind us to the fact that nurses aren't soldiers. Yes, they're in clinics and hospitals across the country, and they are willingly risking themselves to practice the art and science of nursing to keep people healthy. But but to the degree that they don't have resources that they need to do it safely, well, that's not okay. They need PPE. They need the training and resources to fight this pandemic effectively. But look, even though their access to what they need is uneven at best, like Serena said, the nurses aren't running away. They're facing it. They're doing their job. And nurses, they're the best of us. They really are. 
every day with that art and science. It is nurses who are holding the lamps that light our way forward through this crisis. So I think it's pretty clear that nurses inspire me, but but who or what inspires you? We'd love to hear about it. Or questions about this coronavirus or COVID we can investigate for you. Just drop us a line at petridish at tpr.org. That's P-E-T-R-I-E, spelled like my name, dot uh, org. So send us an email. We'd also just love to hear how you're doing as you stay at home. This episode was produced by Ben Henry and Dominic Anthony Walsh. Our sound engineer this week was Claire Mullen. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Our news director is Dan Katz. This podcast is a production of Texas Public Radio. Talk to you soon.